Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we look back on a brilliant week in the Champions League. Chelsea go out valiantly. City fight their way past Atletico Madrid. We'll take a closer look at Julian Nagelsmann's Bayern Munich and what Eric Ten Hag can bring to Manchester United. And then, of course, Easter weekend means FA Cup semi-finals. All that and more on this episode of The Game. Hello again, Hugh Wisencroft here alongside Tom Clark and Ian Hawkey on this episode of the game. And I think every Thursday at the moment, we're, we're, we, you know, we're reacting to what has been a treat, I think. The Champions League living up to billing this week with some remarkable results and performances as well. We have to begin, though. I'm going to do it chronologically, I think, with the first English-Spanish tie of the week, the sensational second leg at the Bernabeu. Real Madrid losing 3-2 to Chelsea after extra time. They were fortunate to go through, I think. Chelsea enjoying 57% possession. They had 28 shots on the night, but it was that first leg disaster at Stamford Bridge that I think uh, was the difference in the tie. Afterwards, the Chelsea boss, Thomas Tuchel, said it was the easiest kind of defeat to digest because his side left absolutely everything out there. And as I say, we were treated by some big teams, some big players over the past week. And Tom... This one, I think, was was the beautiful game at its best. Yeah, you kind of teed it up perfectly there, Hugh. You had two two games that we really got our teeth into this week. Um, we'll come to talk about City, I'm sure. That was for very different reasons. But this was, in the more conventional sense, if you like, an absolutely stunning game of football. What, one thing that's interesting about that Thomas Tuchel quote that you picked out there is it did leave me slightly wondering in a very critical sense whether they're at this point now in the season and in the Tuchel reign where because of what all they achieved so early on in his time at Chelsea where there's a bit of a kind of pressure situation where they went into this game obviously complete underdogs and produced an incredible performance and so nearly pulled off a great comeback but whether it, it left me wondering whether they needed that in order to produce that performance if it makes sense so his comment afterwards Whilst it's a nice thing to say, it also felt a little bit like, again, making a little bit of an excuse for ultimately not getting through. And that was based on a poor first leg, which you have to judge them on as well. So that's me being very critical of a great Chelsea performance with their best for a long time. And, you know, a good performance from Tuchel as well, because uh, tactically he was spot on. He gave 
it gave starts to some players that perhaps we weren't expecting to see in certain positions. Ruben Loftus-Cheek, for example, um, who I thought had a decent game. But yeah, I, 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 as much as it was a fantastic game, it did leave me a little bit sorry for Chelsea fans that it came in this manner. You know, finally they turn it on when it when almost it's too late and they don't quite get the job done. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I'll be honest, the chances at the end, the chances throughout really, Chelsea should have won. I'm, I'm pretty proud of the performance. It's one of those. I, I, I was sitting there and we'll talk about it a little bit later on with City as well because I think it's the same for them. Thinking, my word, you know, they, they need a... They need a focal point. They need a striker that in the box is going to bury all of these chances. If only they'd spent 97 and a half minutes. Uh, 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 they mm-hmm. did. I mean, I know Romelu Lukaku wasn't available, but I actually think had they just had a little bit better finishing on the night, you know, Chelsea go through. They should walk away from that thinking, in many ways, they did the impossible. Just missed out on doing the impossible, if you like, because almost everyone, including their manager, had written them off. Again, it's difficult to describe being a Chelsea fan when I'm not, but I'd be sitting here saying, yes, huge missed opportunity. Antonio Rudiger's reaction at the end maybe summed it all up, but real pride, really. Ian, annoyingly, and this was the only thing that I was annoyed about, I got to the, I got halfway through that game. It was absolutely brilliant. Chelsea was scoring goals, and I thought, please don't let Edouard Mendy's mistake be the difference like if 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 someone is to go through if Real Madrid are to go through don't let it be by one single goal that I, I think you know you, you can't legislate for that mistake in the first leg but then I looked at the goals in the second leg and actually it came from Chelsea giving the ball away so cheaply why blame him they've only got themselves to blame for you know at least three of the goals they gave away um am I right am I fair in that Yes, I mean, you know, it 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 it, it was an epic tie, a magnificent uh, second leg. I agree with Tom. I, you know, I, I think history will remember this as one of the great modern Champions League knockout games. But the first leg was also, you know, there was it was a patchwork of other things as well, wasn't it? Um, you mentioned, you know, a, a centre forward who might have just settled it, and you know, Romelu Lukaku had that headed chance, didn't he, at Stamford Bridge? which, you know, could have been the difference and could have counted towards the overall dynamic of the tie. So, you know, there are lots of things. And, you know, there were there were lots of chances and particularly towards the end for Chelsea, yes, some sharper finishing might have made the difference. At the same time, you know, Timo Werner, who's finishing, we haven't learned entirely to trust. I think that would be fair. Um, he took his goal really nicely, didn't he? He actually, in that important moment, stepped up and looked like you know, looked like a, a, the poacher that um, that he used to be. And Kai Havertz has 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 done the number nine role pretty well. So in the overall scheme of things, I think you know the lack of a, a striker. Yes, yes, I see exactly what you mean. In those in those final minutes, you you wanted you wanted a penalty box killer. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the the whole shape of the the tie overall is 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 a mosaic of all sorts of things, including some absolutely brilliant clinical moments from from Madrid. It's hard to sum up this game because I thought the changes, I thought Mateo Kovacic in midfield for Chelsea made a huge, huge difference for them. Um, I thought, and and many people pointed it out, N'Golo Conte wasn't great in the first leg. I thought he was brilliant for so much of that second leg in midfield, particularly with the ball, actually. But he was part of the two losses of possession, if you like, that led to the Real Madrid goals on the night. So, So, you know, again, here I am expecting perfection. On the other side of things, I think Luka Modric and Karim Benzema 
just about reached perfection over the tie, if you like. It's just about as good as you can possibly get. Ian, for you, does Real Madrid in this competition rest on them continuing to, to roll back the years and, and provide us with those special, um, what's the word, special impacts on the game? Uh, yes, yeah, to, to a large degree. I mean, what was interesting from a sort of Madrid point of view, I think, was that you know Chelsea, Chelsea were the better team, and that was uh, that was partly because they made Casemiro look slightly secondary, and, and Kante had a lot to do with that. And uh, Tony Cross did not have a very good night. So you take away those two, you you know, you take away a big part of the Madrid heart. Unfortunately, as discussed on this podcast several times, Luka Modric is immortal, so he was able. <laughs> up for, for some of that with a you know with an absolutely wonderful moment I think Madrid will be very encouraged by what they saw about their their backups Ancelotti doesn't you know he's he's very much this is my first 11 my first 12 his substitutions were really important you know, Camavinga came on and gave them legs and 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 quite a lot of poise and you know obviously a very important pass later on um and and similarly Rodrigo you know a uh, lovely ball from Modric but you know he did put it away in terms of Madrid's slightly longer term future that was encouraging but also in terms of what they can do when certain parts of the first 11 aren't coping so I, I think they'll, they'll be emboldened by that it's interesting you mentioned the changes. I did watch this game and think, this is why I hate five subs and the possibility of having a, a, another one in extra time as well. I, I, I didn't like it because I, I felt they were able to change the dynamic of the game, the rhythm of the game quite hugely in sort of the last 15 minutes towards extra time and, and they got the goals. But, it, you know, Rodrigo, I, I know all substitutes do this, but I actually think... Real Madrid were like, well, they were up against it and they added so much more tenacity as the game wore on. Again, I've spoken about it before. It's irrelevant. I'm not going to go too deep into it. But I think the five substitutions completely changed the dynamic. Some people say it makes it a better game. There's more energy as you go into extra time. But for me, it, you know, these great sides with great squads bringing on five great players off the bench, um, for me, it, you know, it can really turn things back in your favour, even if you've had a dreadful, dreadful evening. Um, Tom, I was going to say on, on over the course of the two legs, I think there was a lot of fun had between Chelsea and Real Madrid. When this draw was made, we felt like they were two very, very closely matched teams, two huge names in European football at the moment. And that's why we always felt it was going to be a good tie. But I did leave it feeling as if they were a tier beneath Liverpool and Manchester City, both of them. I looked at it and said... Oh yeah, Man City and Liverpool will 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 definitely beat Real Madrid. And if Chelsea had gone through, I would have felt the same. Yeah, I mean we've given Manchester City and Liverpool a lot of praise and put them on such a lofty pedestal um, all season, and quite rightly. And we're not the only ones to have done that. But th but these are two teams that could and will cause them problems. Um, I, I'd, I certainly think uh, Madrid in in the semi final will give City an incredibly tough challenge just because of some of those things Ian's talked about in terms of the experienced players um, and as we've referenced before an experienced manager you know when it comes to this competition it is, it is Carlo Ancelotti's competition in lots of ways so those kind of tactical changes that Ian referenced are just part of a great vast level of experience that he has in these games and getting getting results 
the one thing you kind of touch on there, Hugh, is the kind of perception, you kind of slightly hinting at the perception of Madrid, who, you know, as we've discussed with Ian before, were, were the team um, for many, many years. It's interesting going into these semifinals that we've got City and Liverpool as the two teams in Europe who, as I said, were, are held up so in such high esteem. We've then got Villarreal, who are the kind of ultimate underdogs. I'm kind of wondering, Ian, where, where are Madrid pitched in that? in that kind of scheme of things. Because in some respects, they're not quite underdogs, obviously, because they're Real Madrid and they've got Benzema and Luka Modric. But there is a sense of, I don't know whether it's the arrogance of the English media, uh, as as often the case, but they're almost kind of downplayed and like, oh, they're Madrid, but they're a bit past it. Is that that the sense in Spain as well? Or or, or is it kind of, you know, they're still held in the lofty esteem over there. Do, they, do you think it'll help Ancelotti? Do you think he'll quite like that idea that you think, ah, oh, well, they're great, but this is as far as they've gone? You know, I think one thing Ancelotti has learned to do is is put aside quite a lot of noise um, around games. Uh, no, I, I think the widespread, you know, the, I think the most of Europe uh, knows that there is a formidable Premier League juggernaut at the moment and that, you know, there are two clubs who clearly... By most by most standards are a notch above the rest. So yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think City will be widely uh, regarded as favourites, and also uh, with a with a very specific set of challenges. They play very different football from Chelsea. I think that the idea of of those City forwards running at Real Madrid will be will be something that Ancelotti has to think very hard about. Um, you know, he's got a relatively well, he's got a, a central defence which has only come together this season, so it's no longer Baran and Sergio Ramos. It's um it's Alaba and Gabriel Militao, who are very, very able, but I I, I think City might have the tools to to alarm them. So yeah, I, 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 you know, I think you know, apart from one large affluent suburb of Madrid, I think City would be broadly regarded as favourites. Did Real Madrid receive any criticism for their performance this week, or, or were people revelling in the quality of the tie like they were a bit here? A little bit, but but mainly it was you know uh, what a wonderful game of football and 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 a little bit of chess beating. You know that's Madrid for you. Serial winners know how to win, know how to come back. At the same time, I think you know Ancelotti really needed that last goal. The cascade of criticism for him would have been absolutely enormous had they been eliminated because it's you know it's it's resting there as it is for any Real Madrid head coach and it's what only a month ago that they lost 4-0 at home to Barcelona so skin of their teeth for sure yeah absolutely I I thought it was a brilliant tie um, and I'm hoping that we can continue to see ties of that quality and level and intensity again throughout the Champions League this season but I will mark this point for the season on the game podcast that might be the best game we see all season. That's all I'm going to say, all right? I'm going to say it now. Before we do the end of season review, you can you can click this up and get me back on it. There's plenty more still to come on the game podcast, by the way. So stay with us. We'll be talking about uh, Villarreal against Bayern Munich and Julian Nagelsmann. We'll also, of course, talk about Atletico Madrid against Manchester City. We'll get a down low on Eric Ten Hag and we'll look ahead to the FA Cup semi-final. So don't go anywhere. Okay, let's talk about the yellow submarine next. Villarreal went to Bayern Munich, got the one-all draw they needed to reach a first Champions League semi-final in 16 years. Absolutely brilliant once again, Ian, from Unai Emery. 
um, who could have been the Newcastle boss. I mean, what was he thinking staying in Spain? At the time, when was it back in November? Um, it, it was a genuine dilemma. Um, you know, he wasn't, he needed to be convinced to stay at Villarreal and, and probably be told some of the complications, have, have the complications spelled out to him of the Newcastle job. But uh, I, I mean, looking from the perspective of now, it looks like a very good decision. He's, um, you know, he's, he's on the verge of making history again with Villarreal um, and, uh, and reminding us that he really is a fantastic organiser, um, especially of knockout games. You know, the, across the 180 minutes, um, yeah, he you know he 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 totally out out thought and out planned uh, Julian Nagelsmann, um, and it looked like um, a bit of a a man against boy managerial situation. They were great, you know. They they didn't have most of the ball, as Nagelsmann pointed out, but their counter attacking was superb, and their defensive organisation was almost impeccable. They had some difficulties with, with Bayern's wingers, but, um, you know, they, they, they contained them enough and, and, and what a way to win it. Counter-attack, two minutes to go. Boom. What are the thoughts about whether they can go all the way in Spain? But apart from uh, one small town just um, just south of Castellon, I think not <laughs> hugely optimistic. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, 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 there's a huge admiration for Liverpool and, 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 and some awe of Liverpool. But it will be great. It'll be great to see how Raul Albiol, who I think is nearly 39, maybe 39, and Pau Torres, who is a, you know, is a very good young central defender, cope with uh, Liverpool's front three, whoever they are on the night. And, you know, Emery will, will you know, he'll be, he'll be planning now and, um, and it'll be very rigorous. So another brilliant performance, if you'd like, from, from Unai Emery. Um, but we need to talk about the manager in the other dugout. I saw a tweet on the morning of the game that did make me chuckle. Um, I can't remember who posted it. I mean, it was just someone on, on Twitter who said, today's the day that Julian Fraudelsman gets found out, <laughs> which I found to be pretty funny. I don't know why. And we're going to talk about the Bayern Munich boss as well, because a lot was expected from him. Constantin Eckner has written a great piece in the Times. Tactical tinkerer Julian Nagelsmann is destabilizing Bayern Munich. So make sure you check it out on the Times app. And I'm delighted to say Constantine joins us now. Explain it to us. Why do you think Nagelsmann destabilizes the great German club. I don't think he's the root of the of the issues right now. I think we can talk about that uh, maybe in a minute. But I think at this point in time, he might not be the right coach for Bayern because Bayern are or are about to uh, restructure their squad. There are a lot of talks about contract extensions or possible departures from key players. There's also um, a problem with the bench. Bayern's bench is not up to par if you compare it to maybe Liverpool's or Man City's. Um, and so Nagelsmann is someone who likes to experiment a little bit, who likes to try out things, who likes to think out of the box, which is all good and well. And I think, uh, you know, he's he's one of the more talented coaches uh, in, in Europe right now, especially in his generation. Uh, still he might not be the right guy right now because before you can really you know tinker a little bit uh, maybe you should uh, revamp the squad and uh, yeah create a new team or well, not a new team but you know restructure the team and then you can do all the uh, stuff that Nagelsmann likes to do so 
I think he might not be the right man right now, but Bayern decided to get him uh, for obvious reasons, of course. He's 34 years old, uh, has done very well at Hoffenheim and Leipzig before that. He's groomed as, you know, that, that generational talent in German coaching, um, but maybe, you know, it's not, not a perfect year. Uh, to bring in Nagelsmann. Before we come to the root of the problems you mentioned a few moments ago, I just wanted to know what the reaction was. I've asked this about all of the teams that played in the Champions League pretty much. What was the reaction to Bayern Munich's exit? Do people understand that there are bigger issues at Bayern Munich at the moment or did everything come down to the manager and his approach? No, it, it was it wasn't so much about the manager. I also think that Nagelsmann did well when it came to uh, the post-match interview, where he was confident, still confident in himself and uh, in his abilities. Uh, I think other coaches might not have done that well. Uh, you know, sometimes when you really face a, a defeat and uh, a disappointing defeat, because Bayern Munich playing Villarreal, I mean, a lot of people, of course, uh, expected Bayern to go through, go to the semifinals. However, even before. The second match against Villarreal, there were um, people on Twitter, in media, experts, pundits, and so on, who said, if Bayern go through and they will play Liverpool in the semifinals, they will get slaughtered by Liverpool. Because right now, the, the team itself is not good enough to compete with Liverpool. Um, so there was an expectation that Bayern aren't as good uh, right now as they were maybe two years ago, maybe even a year ago, uh, which come down to some players underperforming, key players underperforming, uh, then just, uh, I don't know, d disturbance within the club because of contract talks and Nagelsmann maybe sometimes a little bit too small for his own good when it comes to tactical approaches. He, he showed that in the first game against Villarreal. Um, so it was a mix of a lot of things. And But people uh, also, there was one, uh, someone, I, I think a journalist said, that was the, the defeat or, you know, being knocked out uh, after the second match um, was just the end result of 10 bad weeks because Bayern have, haven't been that good um, in two, three months now. So it's not, it, it didn't come as a surprise in a way. Still losing to Villarreal in the end is uh, not something you would expect from Bayern. There's still a little bit of a discrepancy when it comes to, you know, the perception of Villarreal because it's still Villarreal and they have a couple of good players. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not that big of a name. What is the root then, Constantine, of the problems you mentioned a little bit earlier on? I think the squad, Bayern's team is um, not at 100% right now. Uh, you have key players, Thomas Müller, Kimmich, even Lewandowski to an extent, uh, underperforming recently. Um, you got a bench that is not really challenging the starting players. So, I mean, one example, just one example. Um, a lot of people may know him, Omar Richards, former left back from Reading. Uh, he, he moved to Bayern uh, in a bit of a surprising move. Um, still, um, I think he's he, he was a you know was a great championship player. Um, but is he really has does he really have the quality to challenge Alfonso Davis or Lucas Hernandez for the left back position? Of course not. It's just I mean it's not a surprise, right? Uh, so you got a bench that's that's pretty weak. Um, and you got a starting 11, or let's say you're the starting 11 plus like two, three players. Uh, so a group of 14, where um, a couple of these players aren't really good right now. And I think Thomas Müller, he shows his age a bit. Uh, you got Dayo Upamecano, the defender who came from Leipzig to, to Bayern, the French defender, um, who 
has not really played well. Um, Lucas Hernandez has his, has his issues, um, the second center half. Um, and so all in all, it, the squad is not as good as you would expect if you just read the names on a list. And that's, that's a problem for Bayern. Plus, and that was something Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, the former chief executive, the, you know, the, who was chief executive for decades at Bayern, but is now retired. He said today, um, he said the climate within the club is permanently disturbed. I mean, it's, it's, it was in German, so it's a, bit, a, bit, a little bit hard to uh, translate, but essentially what he said is like, there's always something going on in this club, uh, and, and not in a good way. Uh, and right now it's really about contract talks because you've got Thomas Müller, Goretzka, Serge Gnabry, uh, Robert Lewandowski. All these guys are either in contract talks or are thinking about maybe leaving the club. Uh, you got Kingsley Coman, who was in contract talks for quite a while. Once the contract talks ended and he extended his contract, now he's the best player on the pitch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, was, he was also the best player against Villarreal. Um, and they double covered, uh, covered him. Una Emery knew that Coman was like <laughs> the, the most dangerous uh, attacking player uh, in this Bayern team which is not something you would have said a couple of months ago. So you got contract talks, you got like the Lewandowski rumors, and you might expect a big club like Bayern just, you know, sw swiping over something like that, but not really. Um, there's just, there's no, there's no calmness in this club. And I think that's something you do, usually don't see from Bayern because they are a well-oiled machine. Uh, on the business side and also uh, on the football side, but right now, not so much. Just finally, what do you think happens then in terms of all of these players in contract negotiations, Julian Nagelsmann, in the summer, is there going to be a lot of players coming into Bayern Munich? Will there be a mass exodus? How do you see it panning out? So, first of all, I mean, Nagelsmann will stay. Um, they will definitely give him a second year. Um, and they will, will also assess his performance more on what he does with the, with the quote-unquote new team uh, next year. Um, and then, I mean, maybe he gets the sack, who knows. Uh, but uh, I expect uh, at least two um, starting players leaving. That's uh, Serge Gnabry and Robert Lewandowski. Might be, and maybe they don't. But the, uh, these 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 two guys are maybe out the door. Um, and Niklas Süle, the center half, has already signed a contract with uh, Borussia Dortmund. This also his contract is, is running out this summer, and he didn't extend with Bayern. Um, so uh, there might be two, three players leaving. Also, a couple of these bench warmers, sorry to say that, but they will also leave, like Mark Rocca and Corentin Tolizo and, and so on, like because they don't have any perspective playing. And on the other side, uh, Bayern will sign uh, probably Ryan Grafenberg, the center midfielder from Ajax, and Nusa Masrai, the right back from Ajax, um, and also maybe, possibly, Christoph Nkunku, uh, the tremendous attacking midfielder from RB Leipzig, who is like probably the best player right now in the Bundesliga. Um, so these three might come and maybe possibly a Robert Lewandowski replacement. So you won't see like an entire new team, but you might see a team that gets a little bit new, uh, more juice by new players coming in, by also um, maybe solving some of the issues. Because just one point, uh, one final point maybe, uh, Masrai, the, the right back from Ajax, might not be the biggest name in Europe or something, 
but I mean, Barca were interested uh, and Bayern will probably sign him. Um, so Pavard, the, the French defender, is right, right now usually playing right back, but he's more of a center half, not a right back. So bringing in Masari, an attacking-minded right back, will also, it will be a minor thing, but it will solve some things, right? Uh, because Pavard is not an attacking threat. So you're, you're um, not as potent on the right side. And, and Grafenberg is 19 years old, center midfielder, so he won't, won't be a starting player probably, but he will challenge Goretzka and Kimmich, the two established center midfielders. So there's more of a competition uh, for the two spots in the starting 11. And if one of the established guys underperforms, then Nagelsmann has someone who can uh, take the spot and uh, play from the beginning. You know? And so I think these minor things might actually help Bayern a lot. And, and then Nagelsmann has to show that uh, he can find a balance between tactical ideas and innovative approaches and man management and uh, you know leading a locker room and so on big job big job ahead of him that's if ryan grovenberg goes of course because as we'll find out a little bit later on another club might be in for him uh, constantin Eckner, thank you for joining us you can read his article on the times app right now make sure you check it out loads of great stuff there for you we'll hear more about eric ten hag next on the game Well, what a night it was at the Wanda Metropolitano, one of the most engrossing goalless straws I think you are ever likely to see. Manchester City through to the semi-finals with a 1-0 aggregate win away at Atletico Madrid. And it was brilliant. It was brilliant for so many reasons. So different to the game between Chelsea and Real Madrid. This one was all about the needle. For lots of people, the end of the game was was mired with with melees, tunnel scraps. That's what we want to see. That is what we want to see. That's the other side of the beautiful game. S housery. We all love it. Listen, Ian, I'm going to start with Atletico Madrid. Interesting reading some of the reaction in Spain. Atletico got a lot of stick after the first leg. Do they deserve a lot of credit after this tie? What do you think? If you enjoy a slow reveal of a football team... Yes. Uh, you know, they, they were really dangerous, weren't they, in the last half hour? Uh, and they played very effectively and the substitutions were good. You know, Correa and Cunha came on and we suddenly realised that there's some really talented strikers in this squad. But, um, you know, why, what, why pace it like that? Why, you know, why, why go into your shell for more than three quarters of of the tie the slow reveal was too slow and too late wasn't it ultimately and uh and clearly uh they enhanced the reputation that they have with some people towards the end for as you say s housery deluxe <laughs> um, uh, they, they, you know they've had i mean even by atletico's caricature standards this has been quite a season in europe philippe's red card was their fourth and that's what in 10 games you know that's uh that's pretty macho isn't that Tom, what did you make of it? Oh, absolutely remarkable. I mean, I don't know about I don't know about other people. Maybe the listeners will disagree with me, but it doesn't feel like the country at the minute is much to be proud of um, to be English. But John Stones, Jack Grealish, and Phil Foden last night, I have not cheered on a team <laughs> that is not my own like I did in those last ten minutes. I think John Stones that was one of the best performances he's ever had for England or or at club level. He was absolutely superb. There are fantastic pictures of him celebrating at the end with Laporte. There was that block, I think, in the final stages as well. I'm not sure who had the shot for Atleti. They had a, had a counter-attack. He was amazing. Uh, and Phil Foden, I mean, just seeing the local lad taking it taking it to Atleti in their own backyard was just absolutely brilliant. 
because you know there's lots of reaction quite strong in the media this morning about Atleti and saying oh they're a joke I'm glad they're out I, I don't mind it you know we talked about Liverpool um, doing what they had to against uh, City at the weekend on the previous show this is what Atleti do they want to try and to win games and this is part of part of their makeup as Ian hints at it was disappointing, perhaps, from their point of view. We uh, we were looking at some of the statistics this morning, and Opta, who do a lot of our statistics, do this momentum graphic where they basically shows which team is on, gives a kind of good idea of which team is on top. And if you put both legs together, it's basically City on top for three halves of football, and then Atleti finally kind of arrived at the party, if you like, which is when City had to resort to those tactics. But it was enthralling. I mean, absolutely enthralling to watch. And as Paul Hurst has written this morning in the Times, it felt like a bit of a kind of coming of age moment for this City team. I know Pep's been in charge for a long time, but lots of people have made points about them in big games, in big competitions. I'm trying to think of a better term than bottling it, but I can't. So I'm going to go with that bottling it essentially and they definitely didn't in this in this occasion they really rose to the challenge and yes that kind of sp- spills out into these emotions the, you know the emotional heated scenes but it was just fantastic and w- if Jack Grealish does nothing else in his Manchester City career other than run down the touchline and wind up Stefan Savic honestly I still think it's money well paid because <laughs> honestly that was absolutely brilliant and by the way for a guy to have beautiful beautiful long locks like his and have them pulled continuously, which they did in the first leg as well. There were lots of clips of Atleti trying to do it and wind him up and not react and just give it them back. That was absolutely brilliant. I thought it was superb. No, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, both of you, in fact. I enjoyed the way, I, I've got to say, as a Manchester United fan, my right fist balled up at the final whistle. So clearly there was a part of me fighting for Britain alongside you, Tom. Um, yeah. Because obviously I don't want to see Witty, uh, City win this trophy. Of course not. But my word, I wanted to see Atletico go out, by the way. Um, it, listen, I, I, Ian, I have to say, there has been some strange reaction, you know, some difference in opinion from us <laughs> and the journalists here and those in Spain over Manchester City's role in all of this because it looked like, to all of us sitting at home, like it was all Atletico and that, in fact, some say Atletico were beaten at their own game um, and that now in Spain, City are being criticised for wasting time, for rolling around on the ground, for for for, for bringing the S-Housery themselves. In fact, they started it. What do you think? Um, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I think part of City's uh, coming of age was part of them not being innocent and pure. You know, it's 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 the same thing. Yeah, they, you know, they they they, they did a little bit of spoiling, didn't they? At one nil up uh, with the temperature rising, uh, but you know that's that's how it works. There's yeah, there, there's a lot of indignation about the, uh, and I'm I'm quoting now quoting a word that I was hearing incessantly on the radio last night, persecution of Atletico Madrid. Um, uh, some of it, some of it is, um, uh, you know, the, what's now perceived as the, as the taunting of by Guardiola of their, their tactics from prehistory in the first leg. Um, but, uh, but a little of it is that um, Atletico, because, because of their reputation, are more easily victimized by the use of the same gamesmanship to, to give it a, a civilized word you know the, the time wasting the, the spoiling but yeah i mean uh, uh, you know simeone knows how to do this and he he would normally back himself to to be able to overcome it in another team i mean the whole scenario at the end there's a fair amount of study behind that if if 
if you look back at Atletico's last group game against Porto, it's very similar. It's um, you know, it's caused a little bit of chaos, and then the ball might drop to you in in circumstances that you you snatch that key goal. So you know, there's a fair amount of study. Clearly, there was a loss of temper too, as as we saw in the tunnel afterwards. But um, yeah, it's it, you know, there's 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 more rehearsal than than perhaps it sometimes looks on the television to these to these moments of melodrama. <laughs> We were discussing it on uh, Monday show after the Liverpool City clash and kind of Liverpool's slightly more aggressive tactics. And obviously now we've got City spoiling, as you uh, very delicately put it, uh, against Atletico. Obviously, we're in this age of incredible technical ability when it comes to football. And one of the reasons we laud City and Liverpool so highly is their brilliant play, watching them score these amazing goals. But this kind of this kind of uh, spoiling is a great leveller in lots of respects. How 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 do you think it's viewed in in football in Spain? Because Atleti aren't the only team to do it slash ever done it. Pep's Barcelona, I always felt were actually quite good at it in a different way to Atleti, but they still had a lot of gamesmanship about them. Great Real Madrid teams from over the years. Sergio Ramos, come on, I mean the guy, absolute a master of it. How is it viewed in Spain? Is it kind of like a, a guilty pleasure in the same way that it is for maybe English fans like myself? I mean, it's not even a guilty pleasure for me. It's just a, I absolutely love it. I think it's a big part of the game and I really enjoy it. Or, or is it a kind of little bit of a dirty secret in Spanish football where they want to be seen as uh, the architects and the artistry of the game? It's a really good question. And I, and I do think there is, you know, there's a little bit of, you can be sort of culture specific about it. As you know, in Spain, there's a, there's a huge capacity to be unbelievably pious about how football should be played, you know, and mystique of tiki-taka that uh, only Spaniards really understand how to do. To <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you're absolutely right. You know, a little bit of a little bit of slyness, a little bit of cheekiness, a little bit of, you know, just, just getting around um, some laws which which. You can smile at cheekily. It, 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 yeah, it's 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 also part of you know it's also part of the, the mischievousness, if you like, I guess, of, of of Spanish football. Perhaps more so in South America. The two things coexist, and they are able to coexist, obviously, because um, if you win doing the beautiful stuff, then that's fine. If you get by doing the ugly stuff, yeah, well, as long as it's one of your teams, that's fine. I hate to put a spanner in the works. Oh, no, I really hate no, to. don't do We're it, Hugh. I, Come on. I, I have to. I really have to. I have to. I have to be fair. I criticise a lot of teams. As you all know, City were lucky to survive. I don't mean lucky to survive the physical attacks. I mean they were lucky to get through. Yes, I mean they were lucky to get through because they dealt with everything that Atletico threw them in terms of the gamesmanship brilliantly. In terms of the football, and Pep Guardiola himself pointed this out in his... Uh, post-match comments, um, they, they lost their, their their structure. They lost what they do well. They lost the ability to keep the ball and the atmosphere did get to them from a football perspective. Had Atletico finished better, I've said it about other teams, I'll say it about them, City would be out this morning and we would all be saying it's another game where there was a meltdown for City and it felt like that because it, was, it wasn't it was just Atletico getting on top. There were chances. There was some last-ditch defending. There was a lot of last-ditch defending and yes, they got through it and yes, I will give them credit for getting through it but from a footballing perspective, you know, you, you, you think about the Champions League going away from home. You think about the final itself in a neutral venue. You need to keep your football if you're as good as Manchester City at a high level. You really need to because that's how you're going to win games. I think you're right, but there is also there's a couple of things I think we've got to factor in when you're making a point like that, which is a valid point and 
you know, Pep Guardiola agrees with you. So there's no point arguing about that. But one, we hold City and Liverpool in particular to such a high exacting standard that we expect verging on perfection from them all the time. Secondly, in that same vein, I can't think of many teams, and Ian can apply the same for European teams as well, who have won the Champions League or the European Cup and haven't had a tie or a match or a, or a leg of a game like this where they've needed a bit of luck and they've played poorly and they've scraped through. But all the English teams I can think of, um, Manchester United always had games where they had a bit of luck, didn't play that well when they won Liverpool as well. So that's, that's a factor. And then when you were talking then, Hugh, and talking about generally um, all three of us about the kind of spoiling, I always think... Roy Keane in his book talks about being at Manchester United and saying that sometimes the players just thought they were Manchester United and forgot that you had to beat the uh, the opponent. You have to beat what's in front of you at their game first and then you play your game, i.e. if you're playing a team low down, you have to prepare to scrap with them first and then you put your superior talent to the test. I almost wonder with City and Atleti, Pep v Simeone, this, that gets reversed and flipped on its head and that they forgot about the football bit. Both teams, in a sense, you know, Ian said about Atleti only turning up towards the end of the tie, which was true. And you said about City losing their way. It's almost like because of the spoiling, because of the atmosphere and everything, it, you became too much the other way. I wonder whether that's that should be factored in just to just just to give City a bit of sympathy in terms of, as you say, the poor, poor footballing performance. Okay, I'll allow you to balance the podcast. Um, Thank you very much. With that view. Uh, Just before we move on, Ian, do you think we are just about guaranteed now an an all-English final? Uh, No, no. I I mean, it's clearly the likeliest uh, scenario, but I I think it's plausible that Real Madrid could, playing to their top of their game, forcing City into some doubt by doing that, it could just about pull it off. But uh, I mean, clearly, I think the likeliest scenario is City go through from that one. And I'm afraid, I I think Liverpool are just too potent for Villarreal. Yeah, well, I've already teed up this uh, section of the podcast with some naked patriotism, thanks to the likes of John Stones (laughs) and the boys. So I'm going to go for it. Yeah, all English final. Got to blow the Spaniards out of the water in the semis. Here we go. Come on. The Spanish Armada is, is done. Uh, Okay, Uh, listen, plenty more still to come on the game podcast. Uh, We'll be talking about Manchester United. We'll also look ahead to the FA Cup semifinals this weekend. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Well, there's big news on the horizon at Manchester United. Of course, there is as they get closer and closer to appointing a new manager. For many, the manager after the departure of Sir Alex Ferguson way back when, this new man will solve all the problems. So many people thinking it's going to be a fix-all, and I'm just not sure about it. So much is wrong at Manchester United. Can Eric Ten Hag fix Manchester United's problems. You can read a piece by Paul Hurst, his dissection of those issues on the Times app right now. And you can also delve into the current Ajax boss with us right now because Arthur Renard, Dutch football journalist, has joined us on the game. He has also written a piece called Eric Ten Hag is a genuine person. You are willing to go through fire for somebody like him. That is a quote, I'm sure, from someone who has worked with Ten Hag. Arthur, tell us more about the man himself, and what you think he will get out of the job at Manchester United? It's a good question. Obviously, uh, working in Holland, uh, Ajax is a big club, but yeah, Man United is obviously a, a step higher also in, uh, in media attention and all yeah kinds of pressure which comes with the job. Um, so it's a it's a really yeah it will be an interesting project, and I'm sure. Uh, technical wise he will uh, be able to yeah do a brilliant job um but yeah as i said before you know with all the other things which comes with the job uh, it, it 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 will be interesting to see how he will uh, fare in uh, in that way let's go through a few of them then bigger managers with bigger reputation than ten hag have struggled at United. Did you think he's ready for this job? Yeah, I think in terms of, of readiness, yes, because he has been uh, at Ajax for like, yeah, f- more than four years now. And he has done well in the Champions League, uh, obviously, especially three years ago when he took them on the verge of, of the Champions League final. Um, so I would say he has proven, yeah, you know, with a relatively small team in the Champions League. So, yeah, I, I think in that way, he's definitely ready. Some people would say that the job at Manchester United is going to be about managing expectations. Those are the fans, of course, the players too, but there is a lot of of dealings with stakeholders. Let's call it that, the hierarchy at Manchester United. They have been, um, for the last seven years, I think a, a big part of what's been going on at the club, the recruitment of players, the infrastructure, so much talk about the stadium. Where will Eric Ten Hag want to go with the club, in your opinion? And how do you think he deals with those in the suits, if you like? Yeah, what I've heard is that it's obviously like has been a, a big talking point. Yeah, also in contract negotiations that he wants to have a say in, let's say, transfers and and yeah, perhaps some other uh, things as well. So uh, yeah, knowing him, you know, he's he really likes to do everything perfect. So I guess he wants to have a yeah as much as control as possible. And I would imagine that has been an interesting discussion because I think Man United has. A certain way of, of doing things so I would imagine there has been some discussion like okay how much influence do I have with players uh, recruitment uh, with other areas and 
yeah, it looks like they have come to an agreement. But uh, knowing him and what he's done so far, I think, yeah, there must have been some kind of like guarantees that he has been given, you know, in terms of like uh, how he wants to do it and how he believes he can, yeah, steady the ship. What about his character, his communication skills? Will fans, will players warm to him? Yeah, I think players definitely. Uh, so yeah, I, I wrote this piece with Urbi Emanuelson, uh, who played with him at FC Utrecht. Um, and he said like, he's such a great personality. He would even go uh, having dinner with players uh, you know, on a free evening. Uh, and yeah, so that, that's also that title, like you go through fire for him, that, that's from him. And uh, he said like, he, he really cares about you. You can really feel like he, yeah, it's a genuine person. So with players, I think definitely, although it's all, all, also interesting to see, let's say if he puts a player like Cristiano Ronaldo on the bench, yeah, you know, that's <laughs> there might be a little bit of a different pressure then. So it's interesting to see that that's difficult to kind of forecast. But but generally with the players, I think, yes, uh, with the media also, yes, although apparently his English is not that good. So that might be a kind of a tricky thing in the start. Uh, but I'm sure he will practice a lot before he starts in the summer. So um, but yeah, that, that is a little bit like that's still to be seen. But if he comments the English language uh, well, yeah, I don't see uh, any problems then. You mentioned something interesting. Um, the idea that Cristiano Ronaldo would be put on the bench by Eric Ten Hag. I'm sure a lot of fans would, would question that. They do love him. He's a fan's favourite. He's actually been one of Manchester United's better performers this season. But is he an Eric Ten Hag type player? Do you think he will want to keep him? at Old Trafford? That's a good question. Uh, a bit like with Rolf Rangnick, obviously they have similar kind of, yeah, a similar kind of philosophy about football and obviously with pressing high and yeah, obviously with Ronaldo, they've said before, like it's maybe not his ideal kind of game, also given his age. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Ten Hag is not too worried if, if Ronaldo will leave. But at the same time, as you said, he has been one of their better performers this year. So it's, it's, it's still definitely a, a player who, who proves his worth. So yeah, let, let's put it this way. I wouldn't be surprised if he is kind of like okay with, with going for new players and, and kind of like having a, um, yeah, starting with some, some fresh faces. What about players, Arthur? Do you think he'll he'll bring anyone over from the Ajax team? Yeah, it's, it, it would be it would be interesting to see. He he always says like, look, I want to keep the focus at Ajax, and I also require that kind of same attitude for my players. So you would imagine he's not talking to them right now. Um, but one is Ryan Grafenberg, whose uh, contract will expire next year, and he already said, look, you know, I, I would like to uh, yeah for Ajax to get some money from me. Uh, he's heavily linked with Bayern Munich. I think they really like him, but he's a kind of Paul Pogba player. And I think he would do really well at Man U. Uh, Ten Hag really likes him. Um, so he could be, yeah, he could be a player, you know, uh, Ten Hag is looking at. Because he's also a player who is not like, let's say, who has a contract for four years that Ten Hag has the feeling, oh, I'm, I'm raiding my old club. Because it's kind of clear that Grafenberg will be going anyway. So, you know, then there is not... You know, it's, it, it wouldn't be a, a big problem then for uh, for Ten Hag to say, hey, actually, if you're going anyway, I would love you to bring to Old Trafford. So, yeah, could be, a, I think, could be a really good player for uh, for the team. From what you know, just finally, of his time at Ajax, what would you say he changed most at Ajax during his time in charge? 
And what elements will he want to bring from his time at Ajax into United? Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's a really good question. And I think what he did is like bringing a, a clear philosophy and stick to it. And uh, I think that's what United needs. And that's why I think it could be a good appointment. Because when he came, he, he stands for a certain yeah, uh, attractive attacking style of football. Uh, he managed to get it in uh, and he sticked with it. You know, there were even games... Let's put. Let's give the Ajax Spurs uh, semi-final uh, three years ago in the Champions League as, a, as an example. So they were kind of like they won the first match one nil uh, at home. They were leading two nil. Spurs came back to two two. So you you could think, okay, let's let's just defend, defend, defend. But Ajax was still trying to get a third goal. And in hindsight, you could say, okay, maybe they should have you know put a bit more focus on defense although obviously they got this equalizer in the 96 minutes so i think it was a bit of unlucky as well but um so yeah he stands for a certain type of football and he he sticks with it and i think that is what you need you know and also at united where who clearly has lost some kind of like direction if you yeah if you would say so in that way yeah that's that is what he has brought to ajax and people are really happy with it. So in that way, I think it's, it could be a really good choice to go for him. Brilliant. Arthur Renard, you can read his piece on the Times app right now. Thank you so much for joining us on the game. So some big games to come in the Cup this weekend. And it has been a great season in the FA Cup. So many shocks, so many surprises, and we should have had more as well. I wonder how many we will get this weekend. We'll talk about the game between Palace and Chelsea in a moment, actually, because we haven't talked about Liverpool's performance in the Champions League so far. In fact, we barely spoke about either of their games against Benfica because... In some ways, they were quite routine. I think Liverpool held them at arm's length. But there was something interesting to come out of. The 3-3 draw with Benfica at Anfield. Seven changes made by Jurgen Klopp, leaving out all of his best players, essentially. Now, we know what Manchester City went through at Atletico Madrid. So the question is, are Liverpool now overwhelming favourites against Manchester City at Wembley, given all of their best players, including Mohamed Salah, including Sadio Mane, Fabinho, Virgil van Dijk, all got a rest in this game. Tom, what do you think? It's going to be fascinating to see how all those things you've talked about balance out because obviously the previous the game the previous weekend you know we all decided that City were the better team Hugh you said they should have won um, I think you're right we talked about Liverpool kind of having to resort to certain tactics and now we go into this game with lots of people and I think Pep Guardiola is very cleverly starting to drum up that kind of narrative of oh we've got a lot of injuries they're definitely the favourites they've been able to rest people because in reality let's be honest I've just defended City and this isn't me being critical of them but they're still going to have a good squad even with injuries they've still got an incredibly talented bunch of players and I actually think in a strange way that might help City having come through a very tense uh, environment against Atleti to then go into another huge game but maybe have to change a few things around, maybe maybe change the system. Who knows, Hugh? I know you love a Pep Guardiola tactical tweak in a big game. Maybe you'll see it again uh, in a semi-final. So it'd be interesting in that sense because another thing is a lot of those Liverpool players who came in did really well. So Jurgen Klopp's now got a thing of, well, I've got loads of big games coming up. Do I, do I go for broke and put all the big names back in? Do I give some of the others another chance? It'll be really interesting to see what happens because I, I do wonder in a strange way whether... It won't, it's not necessarily a terrible thing for City, despite obviously if they were without Kevin De Bruyne and other players, then that obviously is going to be a big miss. But 
in in a strange way, it could be quite freeing for them in a big game. I think sometimes we can we can overdo uh, freshness at a stage of the season where momentum is really quite important and with the, with adrenaline and so on. Um, and it's probably more or as much sort of mental tiredness, which which I, City will have suffered a little bit after after their ordeal in Madrid. I'm reluctant to think it's going to be the decisive factor in this in this cup tie. These are you know these are two teams who know each other pretty well. City have obviously got to got to learn a little bit more about Luis Diaz, for instance. But I don't think I don't think we're going to be suddenly surprised by the extra vim that Mane and Salah show. I don't think it's going to be a, the striking factor in this game. Ian, can I ask quickly about Guardiola? Because I hinted at it. Then we in the English media have become to be quite critical of him in these big games. And obviously, his time at City, he's won the title. He's won one FA Cup fallen short in the Champions League. What was it like, particularly obviously at Barcelona, when I don't think he ever quite got the full... Or, or did he? I think he maybe did get a treble once, didn't he? Treble in his first ever season as a... Yes, as exactly. A so he kind of reaches that reaches that yeah. um, pinnacle and then has been kind of grasping for it ever since. We all we all assumed, oh, well, here's this genius. He'll, he'll achieve it all the time. Because that's another thing in the media at the minute. A lot of the narrative is around, oh my God, Liverpool can win the quadruple. But City can, of course, still win... The, the treble, the Manchester United treble. So wh- how how was it in those earlier days of his career when it comes to these things like tactical changes in big games? Did he just play the same team? What was it like for him as a ma- younger manager? Uh, well, he, he always used to refer to it, as you do, as the Manchester United treble, obviously. Uh, he certainly didn't have, um, you know, when he started at Barcelona, he didn't have such a uh, a deep squad as he has at City and, and not really at Bayern either. The idea of, of the Guardiola overthink, um, I, I think is it, it's much more of a, a phenomenon since he's moved to the Premier League. Although, although you know, there, there, there is a history of decisions that didn't work, certainly at Bayern. Um, in fact, in, in, in a game against Simeone's Atletico when he left out Thomas Muller uh, in the Champions League tie and they and Atletico went through, but no, no. The idea that 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 um, you know there's going to be some high risk tweak for a big game. No, that wasn't that wasn't part of the the identity. Much much more significant, you know, in his younger days as a manager was was how dogmatic he was about a way of playing. And because he was a young manager, you know, there was, are you sure, Pep? And of course, people quickly became very sure. Right. Looking at the other semi-final very quickly, Crystal Palace taking on Chelsea. What chance do we give Crystal Palace? Because they have been an emerging force, if you like, uh, this season under Patrick Vieira. They've had lots of good results as well. Remember, they went to Manchester City and beat them. In fact, four points off Manchester City this season already they've played really really well how do you see them doing this weekend Tom I have quite high hopes for Palace actually we we've just discussed the other semi-final in the kind of context of oh have they had a busy week are they you know under pressure from this are they still feeling the strain of that have they got injuries just judging Palace in their own right this season they've been one of my favorite teams in terms of what they've achieved under Vieira the transition from the Hodgson era and some of the young players they've brought through obviously they won't have Conor Gallagher which will be a big loss for them and is a great shame for him not to be able to play but I think you've hinted at it there they they are set up to work really hard and to give teams like Chelsea a really good game it's just about whether they and they will create chances it'll be about whether they take them and also you hinted at it earlier in your analysis of the Real Madrid defeat it's whether Chelsea missed their chances that they will undoubtedly create as well I, I just uh, I just wonder whether if Palace 
I don't think it'll be a game where the underdog is like, oh, get an early goal and hang on. I think it could be quite an entertaining game where Palace will be in it for most of the game, I think. I don't think it'll be one of those FA Cup classics 1-0 type thing. I think there could be a couple of goals. But I I, I would back Palace to be in the game for for the majority, definitely, at the very least. Do you set up to play on the counter-attack, low block against Chelsea, Ian, or do do you try and take the game to them? Some great attackers at Palace at the moment. And I think, in particular... When they get at you in the first half, they're able to to stun teams, if you like. Is it one of those? Do you, do you throw the kitchen sink at it? It's the FA Cup semi final, nothing to lose. I would imagine that will be that will be the manager's instinct. Yeah, he's done a really good job, hasn't he? And they have, you know, they have they have won big games unexpectedly, not possibly consistently enough. But um, yeah, I, I I I agree with Tom. I I think. I think there's, you know, there's real potential in this for, for Palace to go through. I agree. I, I think we're going to get a couple of FA Cup semi-final classics out of this weekend, as long as, as long as the energy's still there in the Manchester City legs. Um, predictions? Yes, I'm bringing them back on the game podcast. <laughs> it's been a while, but it's the FA Cup. Come on, we can have a bit of fun. Manchester City versus Liverpool. Tom. Liverpool three two. Ian? Liverpool by two goal margin, not one. Wow, okay. Uh, Crystal Palace versus Chelsea, Tom? You do. I mean, you're doing it again. This is my only quibble. I love a prediction, but you do it again, Woosencroft. You've got to give your own man. It's not fair for just throw me and Ian under the bus. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Liverpool City. Come on. I think there will be lots of changes once again from Manchester City. They, they they tend to play a cup team. I'm not sure it will be quite that level. I think everyone that didn't start the game starts um, at the weekend against Liverpool. They'll just be a little bit disjointed. Really intrigued to see what happens with De Bruyne, who came off, of course. Looked like he had a bit of an ankle problem. The midfield's not really the same without him in it. Fernandinho, will he start? Again, it's a lot of players who haven't necessarily played as much. Nathan Ake, who I thought was brilliant off the bench. Does he start? I think there will be lots of changes for Manchester City and I think Liverpool go full strength. So I, th- I feel like they will win this one, 3-1. And Crystal Palace, Chelsea, I'm going to go first on this one. Um, Palace have given us so many great days uh, at Wembley and in the, in, it, in the FA Cup as well. Um, I think this will be another, actually. I'm not sure they'll win. We might go to extra time, though, with this one. I'm going to go to all Chelsea to win on penalties Easter Sunday. Kepper off the bench to go in goal for them. Okay, that's it. That's my prediction. Um, Tom, what do you think? I love it. I really hope he gets to take one as well. Maybe if they brought him on for the penalties, they should let him take the first penalty as well. Finally, I'd get to see a goalkeeper score a penalty. Um, I think you could be right. I think I could see extra time as well. I'm going to go Palace 2-1. Big one. Big shout. Ian? I'm afraid I'm going to go for the, the dull one within 90 minutes, Chelsea, by a single goal. <laughs> <laughs> Boo. Boo! That's not the way we like to end the game podcast. Tom Clark, Ian Hawkey, thank you for being with me, stumbling around for the last hour or so on the game podcast, and to all of you for listening. As you know, from Good Friday to Easter Monday is a massive weekend for football, and so we will be back with Tony Cascarino and co 
on Tuesday for you. So keep an eye out for the game podcast. Comes a day later, but we will maybe be talking about promotions, etc., relegations already at this stage of the season. And of course, those big games in the FA Cup semifinals. But remember, if you're enjoying any of the journalism that we've had for you in the Times and the Sunday Times, make sure you're subscribed and make sure you're subscribed to the app and to the podcast as well. So much to subscribe to. <laughs> Check it out right now. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Tuesday. See you then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.